Welcome to Sacred Realms. It's a great day in Hyrule, y'all. Welcome to Sacred Realms, a Zelda retrospective podcast. I'm your host, Lyndon Willoughby, joined, as always, by my co-host, Matt Willoughby. I got my wife looking in from the other room. She's making herself a ranch water. Yay! Yay! Another ranch water is always the answer. It is. It truly is. We love you. Yay! Thank you for supporting this crazy thing we do. And not judging us too much. <laughs> I mean, there is definitely getting, some judgment. I'm getting, a, I'm getting, a, I'm getting the hand signal of a very little judgment, which is not none, but it's but a little. It's very little. Little. Okay. There's, there's some little judgment. She's great. We love her. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she's pretty great. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I, I, I feel like I married up, right? I would agree with that statement, but that's not hard for you. That bar is pretty low. <laughs> I feel like you're devaluing the awesomeness of my wife when you... You also just opened yourself up for that one, so you did it to yourself, and I, I feel no sympathy for did, you. I did. I did. That was my bad. That was my bad. All right, well. Draw on that pipe for a second and think about what you did to yourself. You know, this is hard because I usually smoke a stogie out here, but uh, I forgot to get one tonight, so I'm doing the grandpa thing and smoking the tobacco pipe, and it's it requires um, a certain level of maintenance that the stogie does they are, not. They are very high maintenance, that's for sure, um, but delicious. They do taste wonderful. Uh, we're not here to talk about your wife or tobacco or pipes or grandpas, even. <laughs> we're, we're not hobbits. We're not here to wax poetic about old Toby. Although, really... There is no better life than that of a hobbit, if you really think about it, for more than two seconds. Five meals a day, uh, you sit around and smoke a pipe and drink beer and eat and hey, Matt, do nothing. You know where the only brew for the brave and true comes from? The green dragon, obviously. The Obviously. Obviously yep. the green dragon. There is only one answer for that. Yep, yep, <laughs> yep. Oh, man. Matt, it is just you and I tonight. We are back in the courtyard again. It feels way better out here tonight than it did last time. It was miserable. It was indeed. It's still hot, but it's not humid, which makes all the difference in the world. It, it truly it truly is the difference between life and death in a, in a Texas June. Indeed. <laughs> and now if I can stop ashing my cigar on myself, I think we'll be in a much better place. Yeah, so, do that no that was that was a little uncomfortable but we we made it we no no holes in the pants this time so that's that's <laughs> the good news oh man uh, matt how have you been doing how are things going oh things are all right you know real life sucks let's just be honest uh i think we we have some good rapport with our uh listeners and you know real life just isn't great but you know what that's kind of one of the great things about uh, video games and about uh, Zelda in particular is it offers just a really wonderful place to escape to and to uh, spend a few hours just forgetting about, in my case, your job and how yeah, much that's say, really not fun. I was going to say, your personal life is going great. No, personal life is fine. My thumb is mostly back to normal, which makes playing video games easier. Uh, my girlfriend and I are doing phenomenal. Uh, you know, just like personal life uh, is good. Professional life, is, it's been hard the last couple of weeks, but, uh, you know, I hear that that's what's being, that's what being an adult is about and as i've been one now for almost a decade which is weird to say mm. um it uh, it is true and but it, it does just give me a greater appreciation for those things that we do that bring a little bit of serotonin into your day right and yeah. um a prime example of that is not only 
the Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild, but also this podcast. And I think that's that's one of the main benefits for both you and I is that, uh, especially during COVID, when we had really no other outlet for creativity or for um, socialization, this this really brought uh, this really became a special thing. And, um, now that, you know, I'm not going to say COVID is over because everybody knows that it's not, if you're an intelligent human being, um, it, it, while COVID is definitely not what it was, um, you know, life is still hard sometimes. And, uh, whether that be personally, professionally, or, or anything else, it's, it's good to have an escape and sacred realms is that for, I think you and I, and hopefully some of our listeners as well. I like to believe so. I was heartened to see that because, you know, um, we've kept a very consistent schedule for this whole podcast and then we took a week off and I was concerned about that. I was thinking like, oh my gosh, are we going to lose some momentum here? Is this going to be a problem? And, uh, I was happy to see that our last episode, uh, was back up into the number of downloads, which we have come to expect, which, uh, which really made me feel great. So, and it was even a day less than normal because we had some technical difficulties on Wednesday. So it came out. A day later in the week, so still off schedule, and we still got as many of y'all as, as we kind of normally get. And just, man, that was really, I also saw that email come in from Buzzsprout today that was just like, hey, you got X number of downloads. And I was like, wow, that feels really good. It, it feels really good to have you guys along for this journey and hopefully enjoying it as much as we are. Yeah, that's the hope. That really is the hope. Um, I mean, obviously, we've got another great section of game to talk about here, Matt. Before we get into that section of the game really quickly, I do want to talk about one rumor that's been floating around the uh, the uh, the social networks today. Um, obviously, one of the biggest if you're a Nintendo fan, one of the biggest points of speculation is when are we getting our next Nintendo Direct, right? Especially this time of year, June. Uh, typically, this is E3 week, Matt. Oh my gosh, E3, may she rest in peace. Yeah. Um, you know, they keep saying like, hey, we'll be back in 2023. I'm like, you know what, I'll believe it when I see it. Uh, I, I think I think E3 needs to go through some kind of radical evolution uh, before it could ever come back and be relevant again. Unfortunately, because E3 just used to be one of the most exciting weeks of the year. Regardless, a lot of the big gaming companies are still choosing this time of the summer to do big reveals um uh microsoft notably just had a huge press conference they did microsoft bethesda did a bunch of their uh ogs or uh what are they called just their first person their first what is the word i'm looking for that's their first uh, party titles thank yes, you yes first party first party titles, titles. Which, which of course any bethesda title is now under that umbrella Indeed. right uh we got a huge look at starfield which looked amazing it looked really good i'm very stoked for that no look at elder Scrolls 6 which made me personally very upset i think it's going to be a while on that I, I mean i think it's gonna be a while too but at least they could have said like wait a couple of years or like even here's another cool teaser like they did with when they just revealed i don't know there's enough other stuff going on but i mean you you are a bethesda person so did starfield did that did that did that do it for you yeah starfield looks really good and i'm definitely going to be getting it that's the uh i was kind of neither here nor there for a little bit and then they got me with uh you can fly your spaceship and have spaceship combat and i said all right i'm there i'm doing it I'm in a thousand planets, Matt. I see. I just won't be. I don't have time for that anymore. <laughs> I just don't. If I was if I was yeah. uh, if I was 19 and in college. Yeah, dude, I'd be exploring all thousand of those planets. Yeah. But uh, I am neither 19 nor am I in college. So I heard that have a real job and real responsibilities and, and a girlfriend who actually likes to spend time with me. So I'm going to try <laughs> to keep that going as long as possible and not kill uh, it on Starfield. That is a wise life decision. So that's what Microsoft is doing. But of course, 
Uh, we always wonder when we're getting our next big Nintendo Direct, especially now when we know that any Nintendo Direct could bring some big, big news for us, right? Yeah. Uh, and any Nintendo Direct could bring some big, big news for us, especially now that we have. So, you know, Breath of the Wild 2, the sequel, has been pushed out to next year, right? Right. But we have a firm release. Most likely early next year. Yes, we have a firm release window. Nintendo has said spring of 23, which means I think they're pretty confident in that. There's no like there's no need to elaborate a specific uh, time of the year if you're not confident in that right yeah for sure cool so any nintendo direct especially the big one that usually comes at this time of year has got the potential to come with more big breath of the wild sequel news right correct so uh all that is to say it seems like we've got big rumors about when the next nintendo direct is going to come and this comes via a person that you matt are uh very familiar with that would be one alana pierce I do love myself, Alana. She's a good egg. She is. Uh, Alana has come out with some insider knowledge saying that she has heard that our next Nintendo Direct will be coming on the 29th of June. That is a Wednesday. It has been corroborated by several other people who are in the know. What that leads me to believe is that, um, look, obviously, I think that information is accurate up into a point like i i think that they all 100 percent have had good sources that lead them to say that that is the case that being said you can never truly count on nintendo's scheduling one way or the other um they've been known to uh to turn on a dime in terms of their rollout strategies their publication like um all of that stuff so nintendo could pull a a 180 and just push this uh, direct out another few weeks or even another month or two. But as of right now, it seems like we're going to be getting a big Nintendo direct on the 29th of June, uh, a direct that would have any other year been a part of E3. So yeah, for sure. And I think that's probably one of the reasons Nintendo always plays these scheduling things so close to the vest is they want to give themselves some opportunity to back out sans public backlash, right? Um, companies like Microsoft who publish their date for their Bethesda uh, Microsoft conference like over a month and a half ago, I think. I was starting to see it on my Xbox yeah. popping up. Yeah. Um, Nintendo is pretty notorious for like, hey, next week we're going to have a direct. I mean, I, I mean, and that's even a best case scenario. I feel like more often than not, you're getting you're getting um, a Nintendo tweet the day before the fact, you know, which is crazy to me that they can do that and still drum up more hype than anybody else. It's Nintendo. You know what we're talking about? We're talking about a company who does everything in their own way. Um, a lot of times those those methods are inscrutable, but uh but successful. Yeah, I mean it's Nintendo. So, you know, what are what are you going to do? This is all part of this is all part of the territory of being a Nintendo fan. Um and so yeah, all we can do is kind of sit around and hope that this information is true and that we will be getting a direct of some substance uh in the last week of June. And if that does happen, then I think the odds are 75-25 in favor of us getting a good look at Breath of the Wild 2. Yes, absolutely. I think if we don't, everyone will be shocked yeah. and disappointed. I think I think a title maybe. Um, if not, then Nintendo is going to be saving a massive, massive direct for uh, fall where they just blow out this entire and thing. And it would be like 
pretty much solely dedicated to Zelda at that point because really yeah. there hasn't been much Zelda in either of the last couple directs. Well, you know what? Like, if they know? don't, if they don't show Breath of the Wild two at the June direct, then I would hope that we at least start getting uh, maybe a release date for like Twilight Princess HD or or something like that. Man, I really I, or I just, or a Wind Waker. Wind Waker. I just HD. really hope for either or or both, and because I would love to play those games when we get to them, which could be. I don't know how, how we've charted out this before. How long is this podcast going to run for if we do all the Zelda games? Like three or four years, right? And we're a year in. So, you know, uh, over the course of the next couple of years, by the time we eventually get to those games, which I assume will be sooner rather than later, probably. Sure. But, um, yeah. I would love to play those in HD. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, if if Twilight Princess or Wind Waker comes up as the um, <laughs> uh, as the voted option, whenever they become available and they are not able to be played on the switch, then you and I are going to maybe we're going to have an issue trying to figure out how to like, <laughs> yeah, I've, that'll be interesting. I've got a Wii U that's got both of them on it, but you are going to be kind of up a Creek in that regard. So Indeed. we'll need to, we'll need to figure that out. But uh, regardless, yeah, mark that on your calendars. Look out for something happening close to June the 29th. We'll see if that, is uh if that actually pans out but right now it looks like the info is good and you should at least allow yourself a smidgen of excitement get two twenty percent hype 20 percent hype there you go that's the official number from sacred realms a zelda retrospective podcast matt now that that's out of the way are you ready to get our preamble out of the way and get into this chunk of the game do some preamble Lyndon. If you didn't know, Sacred Realms is a weekly re-examination of The Legend of Zelda one little slice at a time. Sacred Realms drops every Wednesday and is available on all major podcast networks. Every week we play a new section of a Zelda game, then we sit down here to talk and to drop our hot takes. If that sounds fun to you, please head over to Apple Podcasts, hit that subscribe button, and be sure to leave us a review. Five-star reviews are greatly, greatly appreciated. And I have a chance to get a shout-out here on the show. If you want more Sacred Realms in your life, you can always head over to patreon.com slash sacredrealmspod to get access to listener mail, vote on what game we play next, and much more. In addition, one of the benefits we offer to Master Sword patrons and above is that we read your names every week, Right here on the show. Those legendary individuals are. Hold on before you do that. I have a question. Yes. At, at what point do we hit do we hit critical mass where this is that's no longer uh, <laughs> a uh, thing we can do? We're not even close to there yet. <laughs> no, I know. But I was just like curious. What's that? Number? I don't know if we I don't know if we had like if we had like a hundred, two hundred. Oh, wow. I you do a hundred. Do a hundred. Yep. Wow. Yep. That's shocking. Okay. Okay. Yep. You heard it here first. Those legendary individuals are Allie, Lennon, Leviticus, Melanie, Kolku, Rowan, Joshua, Nick, Hyrule Podcasters, Keep It Going Pod, Dante, Jep, Mary, Brittany, Davey, Haru the Mighty, Derek, Albert, Mark, Andy, Cameron, Tyler, Ben, Daniel, Nick D underscore TV, Travis, Christian, Jonathan, Hyrule Interviews, also known as Max Nichols of Bungie, my colleague. Garrett and Drew. You just love to throw that my colleague of Bungie in there, don't you? I do. It's a big part of my life and I'm enjoying the hell out of it. We could not make this podcast without your generous support. We appreciate you so much. We know that uh, any money 
uh, donated is, um, uh, you know, I'm sure you have other things that you could be using that on, and we appreciate that you're sending it our way. So, y'all rock. Absolutely. Much love. All the things. We, yep. would, we would give you the full Triforce if we could. We would give you the full Triforce if we could. Although I feel like we would need some sort of vetting process to make sure that you wouldn't be casting a wish that would, like, irreparably harm the world. But... I think that's fair. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. What, what would our vetting process be for that? We should think about that. I don't know. It, I mean, we should at least have like talk about it over coffee. Like, yeah, we should at least meet you in person at maybe once. Like, what would you do with the drug? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but without further ado, let's talk about what we played this week. That happens every week, of course, in the Sacred Realms Rundown, which is a six part analysis of what we played this week and the feelings that it made us feel. Today, we are covering Breath of the Wild chapter 11, which is the front half half of the Gerudo Desert experience. We've got the Gerudo Town Exploration. We've got the Yiga Hideout. We are not covering the Divine Beast or um, Odds and Ends later in the... I think next episode, we it's going to be the Divine Beast and then just like Desert Exploration, I think is what yeah, we said. for sure. Yeah. Okay. So uh, part one of the Sacred Realms Rundown is, as always, the plot recap as read by Matt. Matt has got it ready to go. He's going to let it off the chain. And yep. not not ad lib it this time. Nope, nope, nope. It's 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 pre written and it seems uh, it seems substantial. So, without further ado, take it away, Matt. As we leave the Spring of Power, we head west towards the Gerudo Highlands and the Gerudo Desert, the last unexplored regions of our map. We have already explored a majority of the shrines around Hyrule, but on our way, we find a few more points of interest and a few more hidden shrines as well. The Gerudo region houses a variety of harsh landscapes, from the Tabantha-esque Highland mountain range to the badlands and tar pits of the lower highlands and out to the arid sand dunes of the deep desert. The Gerudo region is also home to the only other human species in Hyrule, the imposing and ferocious nearly all-female tribe of Gerudo. As we leave the Highland Mountains and take the main road towards Gerudo Town, we see only one other outpost that is centered around an oasis. There are some merchants here, including one clothier named Rondson, who we promptly ask to relocate to Terrytown if she is willing, and she obliges. Beetle is there as well. Beetle is there, yes, but he's everywhere, so I didn't feel the need to call that out. Oh, I thought it was interesting that he's here at a place that is not a stable. I guess that's a good point. Is this the only non-stable place we encounter Beetle, other than, like, randomly on the road occasionally? I think so. Cool. Good for Beetle. Good for the Oasis Town. Also in the outpost, on the highest point of an odd rock tower thing, is a mysterious Gerudo woman who is gazing wistfully at the distant town. This woman tells us that men, or as they are called by the Gerudo Vo, are not allowed in the Gerudo main town at all. But if we want to get into the town, we can wear a clever disguise and a face mask. She offers to sell us a traditional Gerudo outfit for a mere 600 rupees, and as we don it, she tells us how adorable we look. We head south towards Gerudo Town, and sure enough, unless we are wearing our new Totes Adorbs costume, uh, they do not let us in. 
As we explore the town of the Gerudo under drag, we see a thriving people who are adept traders, warriors, and artisans. Their spa is also pretty legendary, and they even have a speakeasy that serves iced drinks in the middle of the desert. Uh, this place is super awesome, and we would love to stick around even while in full drag uh, outfit, but there is much to be done. So we head off to see the chief of the Gerudo to tell them of our unique divine beast taming abilities. We find on the throne a seemingly very young woman with stunning green eyes and nearly floor-length blood-red hair. She introduces herself as Riju, the chief of the Gerudo people. Her imposing bodyguard commands us to come no closer but to speak our peace post-haste. So we go on to tell Riju of our skill, and in doing so, the young woman shows her cunning by calling us out not only on being a man, but also she deduces that we are the ancient swordsmen from the time of the Calamity. She knows this because her mother told her stories of the ancient champion who fell fighting the Calamity, but was rushed to the Shrine of Resurrection. She can tell who we are not only by our name, but also by the Sheikah Slate on our hip. While the bodyguard Boliara... While the bodyguard urges sure. Riju not to trust us as we're strangers, Riju feels that we are the right person at the right time. She asks us to go to the hideout of the sworn enemies of the Gerudo, the Yiga clan, and reclaim the ancestral helm of the Gerudo chiefs that was stolen from her, the Thunderhelm. The Thunderhelm is the only thing that will allow us to get close enough to Von Naburis in order to tame it. So we head off to the Yiga clan hideout at once. We find the hideout deep within a ravine of the Gerudo Highlands and make our way past the perimeter guard with ease. Inside, we find a maze-like succession of rooms, all patrolled by some absolute units of Yiga clan members with massive swords that will immediately call out for help if they spot us. A helpful Gerudo prisoner tells us that the guards are easily distracted by the mighty bananas that they so love. With some banana-inspired trickery, we make our way through the hideout to the outside area, where we see a weird gigantic pit, and out of that pit comes a petulant voice that asks why we are invading its napping spot. Out of thin air pops a fat man in a Yiga clan outfit who comically rubs his eyes through his mask and declares his good fortune that we just happened to wander into his hideout while he seeks our death so adamantly. Master Koga, as he says, uh, is ready to do battle, and while we are annoyed but not surprised, we do engage. Despite his ridiculous mannerisms, he is capable of some pretty impressive magic. He routinely summons large boulders to throw at us, but of course we find a fun way to use that against him. Shooting him in the face makes him drop the big boulder on his head and get stuck in the sand. From then, we can literally spank him with a sword a couple of times until he jumps over the big pit, levitating, and summoning some more gigantic balls, which he tries to throw at us. Again. An arrow to the face quickly drops the ball right on his head. He ends up back in the dirt, gets smacked a couple of times, rinse and repeat, thorough thrashing for Master Koga. As he tries to snatch victory from the jaws of defeat, he summons a ridiculously large metal ball to try to crush us with, but only succeeds in crushing himself and falling down his large pit while screaming that his followers will pursue us to the ends of Hyrule to kill us. A much less dignified death than Emperor Palpatine. Much less. 
and it wasn't even a death. No, actually, I mean he's just like later. is he just like chilling down there now? No, I'm talking about Palpatine. Oh, right. Well, okay. <laughs> a little less said about that, the better. Yeah, it's exactly. <sighs> but the master of the Yiga clan is dead. The Thunderhelm comes to our possession, and we have no reason to remain in this lair of deadly assassins any longer. Taking our prize, we head back to Gerudo Village to deliver the heirloom to Riju and hopefully take the next step towards claiming another and the last of the Divine Beasts. This has been the plot recap as read by Matt. Part two is our takes where we talk about this section of the game and how it made us feel. I want to start off, Matt, before we even do our homework. Um, I want to try and get a tone check from you. So we made a decision two weeks ago Um when we were looking at all the content that was going to need to be done in this section of the game. Yes. We were trying to figure out, can we get this done in one episode or should we split it up into two? And of course, as you now know, we have indeed decided to split it up into two episodes. Having played the front half of that now, do you feel like we made the right decision or do you feel like this could have been encapsulated in in one episode? Oh, no, we definitely made the right decision. Like there's a lot. I forget how, like obviously the Gerudo desert is huge. But the Gerudo Highlands, while not like sprawling necessarily, they're not it's not as large as the Tabantha region, for example, but it's heavily layered and there's just a lot to explore and look around and do. And like, yeah, the Yiga clan hideout, I, I think we were thinking the Yiga clan hideout itself would be a little more was a little bigger than it actually was. In my opinion, I was thinking it was bigger than it is. Um, but just the exploration in general is pretty intense and um and i do remember von naburis being definitely the hardest of the divine beasts so i'm i'm very glad we split this up because i think if we had tried to do all of this in one episode not only would the plot recap easily have been another two-ish pages uh it would have been another couple hours of gameplay that just like would have been kind of rough to try to fit into a week so um yeah i'm i'm glad we split this up i think it was also i think it was a good natural Segway point, right? Like ending with claiming the Thunderhelm, I think is a pretty natural stopping point um, to then take a small break and then come back and you have a pretty good jumping off point into the next main part of the quest. So, yeah, agree. All right, let's get into some homework. I'm going to go ahead and do my worksheet first. Our starting point and ending point was as thus. We started in the Spring of Power. We ended uh, in the Yiga hideout after defeating Master Koga. My route taken was I warped back to the Great Plateau, then headed over to the uh, stable that's over there by the Coliseum. I forget which one that is. Foothills? It's uh, mm-hmm. No, it's not. Uh, outskirts. That sounds right. The outskirts stable. Um, From the outskirts stable, I went on foot over a series of bridges that lead you to the southwest of Hyrule. I came to the walls of the Geryudo Mountains and, uh, uh, you know, beat a few shrines over there. Um, I went through the canyon that leads um, into the Geryudo Desert. And and here's the point where I start to actively correct myself away from saying Geryudo in trying to actually say (laughs) Gerudo because it's been pointed out by several people, including uh, Cody Davies from last week that I, I don't know why I say that, but I I just, I do. I really don't either, but 
Yeah, you do. So I'm going to try not to do that. So I come through the canyon into the Gerudo Desert. Uh, of course, uh, stop over at the stable, which is the Gerudo Canyon stable, um, is warranted. Fill up on arrows with beetle there. From there, I went southwest towards the oasis and then southwest even more towards Gerudo Town. Uh, I went through the whole process of the quest there, talked to Riju, and then proceeded immediately north from Gerudo Town via Sand Seal. I love Sand Seal. Yeah, they're great. Uh, to the hidden lair of the Yiga Clan. My shrine count was 88 at the end of this week. Towers activated were Wasteland and Gerudo, which notably uh, completed my map, which I'm sure it did for you as well. Yes, it did. Yeah, okay, cool. So the entire map is done. No more towers to activate. Matt, I believe it is your turn to read your worksheet. It is indeed my turn. Um, let's see. We've got same starting and ending point, spring of power to Yiga Clan, giant pit, as I called it. Uh, mm. um, we should have a name for that giant pit. It seems like it deserves a name. Um, anyway, it doesn't have one yet. We'll think about it. Uh, da, 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 da. So I did not take even remotely the same route that you did. Um, I actually warped over to um, the shrine that is on the edge of Mount Hattori, Satori, Satori Mountain, uh, Maglatan. So yep. I warped over there and just very luckily happened to be uh, at the beginning of a blood moon cycle. So I uh, headed over to Washa's Bluff where that fun you know the Cass's quest shrine was yep uh so i knocked that out and then i said you know what screw it uh let's just kind of take the most direct route and just started climbing the uh gerudo mountains uh mostly i went over there because there's that one shrine where you have to shoot an electric arrow at the the painting on the wall so i did that uh and then just went straight up the gerudo highlands mountains uh, wandered around a bit fought that lionel that's over there uh, went down south, so I really like went straight over the Yika Clan hideout at that point. But obviously, if you drop into the Yika Clan hideout, you don't get to fight Master Kogi. You actually have to go through it. So, um, quick tip: if you've never played Breath of the Wild before, uh, you cannot skip the Yika Clan hideout by jumping into the final encounter pit. It doesn't well, work. And notably, the Yika Clan hideout is empty if you come there before you talk to Riju. Also true. Um, so I went over the Yiga clan hideout down to the Gerudo tower. Um, then I just kind of went straight west, a little south over to activate the wasteland tower. Um, and then from there is when I went over to the, excuse me, Gerudo Canyon stable, then down to the bazaar, the Karakara bazaar, which is what it's called. And then uh, Gerudo town. And I actually went from Gerudo town all the way to the very southwestern portion of the map that you can reach to the great fairy fountain uh, by the skeleton, uh, because I really wanted to fully level up my a couple of armor sets that I have. Um, the two that I'm fully leveling up, which are the knight's armor and the ancient armor. So I fully leveled those up. Then I went back north to back to Gerudo, talked to Riju. Uh, I actually got the sand boots. I did the sand boots quest. Nice. And then uh, also took a sand seal uh, to the Yika clan hideout and did that. So I kind of went a little further and roundabout than you did, but more or less the same. Awesome. So let's go ahead and talk about this section of the game. Generally speaking, uh, I want to ask if you oh, hold on. I didn't do my shrine count or anything. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. 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 Uh, shrine <laughs> count is 92. 
Uh, so still beating you a little bit. Yep. Uh, 90 Korok Seeds and Gerudo Tower and Wasteland Tower activated. So yeah, there we go. Cool. Round it out. So let's go ahead and talk about how we felt about this section of the game, just generally speaking. Um, I'm going to go ahead and say that I really enjoy this section of the game. I think that there's an interesting an interesting thing that happens where um, the way that I usually play this game leads me to the Gerudo Desert last of, mm-hmm. the, of any of the major areas. Every time I have played it, I've done that as well, and I don't really know why. Well, I think it's because geographically speaking, the Gerudo region is a lot more difficult to get into. Um, There's a lot more environmental hazards. Um, The enemies are beefier. There's a lot more like electricity-based enemies, right? So uh, it's a more difficult area of the map. And just geographically speaking... Uh, you really have to try to get in here. You yeah, know? it's it's very, very secluded, that's for sure. And I do actually, I like that continuity-wise, right? Because it's it's pretty pretty explicitly stated that um, the Gerudo are kind of a seclusionist tribe. Like, I'm thinking in Ocarina of Time, which uh, is one of the more recent game, which is, I think, because the Gerudo aren't in Link to the Past or Link's Awakening at all. No, they are not. Uh, so, and they're not in Skyward Sword. So this and this Breath of the Wild and Ocarina of Time are the only two games we've played so far that even have the Gerudo in it. Uh, and it's pretty explicitly stated in Ocarina of Time that they're kind of a seclusionist tribe. And even the um, getting to the Gerudo Desert from Hyrule Field is like you go through a mountain pass and like it, it looks very separated from the rest of the map. Even when you look at the map overworld, it's kind of further off to the south. So I like I think continuity wise, it's very appropriate that the Gerudo uh, desert and the Gerudo town are harder to get to than most of the other sentient races, you know, other than maybe the Gorons, of course. But like, I think it's appropriate. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. Um I don't know. I I think that what that leads to is whereas the rest of the map of Breath of the Wild feels kind of like you could stumble into any of it at any at any point in time, really. Uh, this one really feels like you have to try to get here, and because of that, it always just feels like the great uh, the great unexplored frontier to me. You know. <laughs> I think that's uh, that's a very fair description. I, I, I agree. It's it's always the very last place I go, and as much as I have explored in this game, I still don't really feel like I've explored all of the Gerudo Desert or all of the even the Gerudo Highlands or the Wastelands. And there's like, a ton. There's a lot of shrines. There's a lot of secrets. There's a lot of enemies to fight. Um, there's a there's a, a quest lines. You know, there's a lot of stuff to do in the Gerudo region. So, uh, yeah, from that from that standpoint, really, um, this just feels like such a it's such a rush to get here because even when you look at the map, I mean, the amount of space on the map that this area takes up is gigantic. So, uh, so it's really fun to get here. Uh, moving past that, I think the story stuff that we kind of come across is a lot of fun for the most part. I think there are a few things. A few story beats that are handled a little weirdly, but for the most part, mm-hmm. I think that um, the characters that we meet, I love Riju. I think Riju. Yeah, I'm a huge great. fan of Riju. Yeah. Uh, now that we've kind of gotten here, I think that uh, Sidon and Riju and 
actually, yeah, I think Sidon and Riju were kind of having a big old fight for like number one main NPC, and Tiba yeah. and Yunobo were kind of like hanging back for like Tiba's uh, cool, but like yeah, yeah, but he's really not Riju. He's not Riju, and and I feel like you <laughs> you you interact comparatively less with Tiba a lot yeah. than, than with either Sidon or Riju. So yeah, I think Riju is is a really cool character. I think Gerudo Town is a really cool spot. I think mm. I think that is an area of the map that really feels very specific to that culture like they did a lot of um they put a lot of effort into making that feel like a lived in part of the map with its own culture and its own customs um as they as they have with the other towns i think the 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 least impressive of the towns is the goron village yeah but i mean it's just a pit of lava with rock people so like not a whole lot you can do with that i guess but no i think gerudo town really is is really really impressive and um the the water that they have flowing with the uh mosaic style um aqueducts that's those the bright blue stones it's yeah, very yeah. um central american in that way kind of almost mayan or something mm-hmm. um really really like it and like i said in my plot recap very intentionally garuda sounds pretty dope like they have a kick-ass spa they have a speakeasy yep. they have really really talented artisans and craftsmen um it seems like a very um uh, egalitarian, I think is the word I'm looking for society where it's very equity focused. Oh, like sure, there's, yeah. there's not a lot of, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of power disparity. Um, there's not like a slummy part of the town. Right. Yeah, and yeah. I, I think that they've done really well in kind of showcasing the, the feminine aspect of the Gerudo people, but not making that frilly. It mm-hmm. still feels very, impressive and it still feels very like this is a warrior culture and it and you can feel that in certain aspects of the town and they they did a really really good job throughout all of that and like even their weapons are you know the golden scepter the moonlight scepter the radiant shield that that you can get that was herbosa's it's it's bejeweled it's gaudy almost but still impressive yeah i I like it a lot yeah um (laughs) We obviously have a lot of story beats to kind of cover here. Um, interestingly, I was surprised we do not get our introductory cutscene uh, with Urbosa in this section. I, I thought we were going to, and then it was just Riju saying some pretty clever things and like yeah. no, nothing about Urbosa at all in this first part of the game, which first part of the section, which is interesting yeah uh we do get the cutscene introducing the divine beast vonaboris as soon as we get into this area of the map and i think that vonaboris we're not going to talk about too much this week obviously because we're not like doing any of that but i do think that vonaboris feels proximate to gerudo town in a way that va meadow va ruda and va rudania did not to any of their respective towns i think va rudania felt pretty proximate the way that Vonaboris does just because it is literally right above it and shooting rocks at you when you literally step 10 feet out of yeah, the yeah, perimeter. Okay. But all right, that's fair. I, I think of the four, Naboris and Rudania are easily the most imminent danger, right? Like, I think that's what you're kind of getting at is they feel imminently dangerous to the population of the town. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, so let's go ahead and get into some of the more nitty gritty story beats here. 
Uh, Matt, what, um, so let, well, let me I, just ask you, what did you think of, of, of everything that we kind of get up to here? Yeah, I, th- I think it's all really great. I, I really like it. I'm actually going to kick it right back to you because what you said that kind of caught me, that kind of caught my interest was you felt like some of it was a little missteppy. So like, what, what do you think was kind of misstepped? Cause I, I'm not really, I don't necessarily agree with that just off the top of my head. So I'd like to hear your perspective on that. So this is, this is a kind of hairy topic of conversation. Uh, one of the main, um, one of the main points of criticism against Breath of the Wild when it first came out was its handling of, uh, gender dynamics and LGBTQ politics in this section of the game. And a lot of that comes from the depiction of the character that you get the Desert Vi outfit from. Yeah. Um, obviously, we have kind of a very what I would call mid '90s depiction of a crossdresser in that character. I think that's fair, right? And to to where now, I think, especially in the dialogue, that character is kind of explicitly portrayed as being trans, trans adjacent. I don't know. I mean, like that, it, but but it's kind of it's played for laughs in a way that I don't think would have been done by a Western company in this day and age. Um, and, and the, the place that a lot of the backlash came from was, um, a recognition of the fact that Nintendo as a Japanese company, uh, Japan in general is not quite as, uh, forward thinking in terms of its depiction of LGBTQ characters. Right. Um, there's a very, traditionalist aspect that's usually kind of levied in that direction. Um, and this is a character who is pretty explicitly like, um, you know, the non-conforming. Yeah. Non-conforming. Um, and so I, I think a lot of people at the time felt like this was handled for laughs in a way that was maybe just a little bit insensitive. Um, and, and, you know, I, I, uh, I am a, a cisgender heterosexual man so heterosexual 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 i'm a cisgender heterosexual man and so i do not feel even remotely qualified to comment on this in a in a more detailed way than that other than to say that i know that this was a point of backlash and i can kind of see it when we get into those cutscenes. it is it is played for comedy in a way that feels just a little insensitive um, there are parts of it that I think are really funny. I think that, you know, the whole the whole camera swing around Link when, once we have the Desert Vi outfit on, you know? Yeah, and then he, And then Link has that little pose where he's just like, oh, like, oh look how cute I, I am. I feel so cute. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that that's all pretty, you know, that's all done pretty well. That humor is done pretty well. Um, but yeah, I, I, that that is kind of the elephant in the room of this section where it, it has come up. That's you know? fair. I think... Uh, you know, it's it's interesting that such a major race within the Legend of Zelda is so strictly monogendered. Um, yeah. And I think that does definitely like Nintendo made this difficult for themselves in some ways. Right. Like they just did. Yeah. And they it feels like they tried to kind of find a way to lean into that, but not force people to like feel that cross dressing in it was 
not 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 okay, but I don't know. The, the, it definitely is a little weird. It, it's it, they put themselves in a box. Yeah, they kind of leaned into it, but tried to lean into it into a way that was like, well, it's kind of funny, and it's like, but is it like you're just adhering to the socio economic norms of a the, the predominant race within this area? Yeah, you're you're holding to their cultural expectations. Why does this have to be funny? So I, I get that. Um, again, also as a cisgendered heterosexual uh, male, heterosexual, heterosexual male, I, I also don't really feel um, qualified to comment on it past that. And just commenting on every time I play this section of game at the beginning, having to disguise myself in drag feels a little weird. And feels like it maybe could have been done a different way, or maybe even it's just like when they realize who you are, like you get a special pass, like Link does in Ocarina of Time, where the, he gets like the Gerudo guest pass, right? Yeah. Like what we we could have done something like that, or we could have done something to make it less just uncomfy. Yeah. It's a little uncomfy. Yeah, I do think it is interesting that even after Riju uncovers the fact that you are a Vo and chooses to let you hang out anyway that you still cannot equip regular uh garments while in gerudo town yeah no for sure and really the only reason i'm slightly peeved about that is i went and bought all the desert vo armor from ronson and Terrytown, mm -hmm. and it's some of the coolest looking armor in the game like you have that dope pauldron on one side right the red pants and the the high top bun like yep. it's a really cool looking armor and i just want to wear it around and i can't really do that in gerudo town and i feel like it would be really fun to to stretch your desert vo armor go to the spa and like hang out well i feel like the main purpose of any of the vo or vi armor is to give you that um you know, that cooling bonus where... Well, obviously, that's right. the that's the utilitarian use. But, but, the, but the thing is that in Gerudo Desert, if you, if you don't feel like making cooling potions and you don't feel like wearing those outfits, all you really have to do is cook, is uh, start a fire and just wait until night and then you're good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Really, Lyndon, I just want to walk around Gerudo Town and let all the ladies fall in love with me. Well, that's really what I want because because they are all like they are all really there for it. They are wanting some vo in their life, and like they're just that's the other kind of weird thing about about Gerudo Town is it's all these women that are just like so focused on finding a man and getting married, and right? I'm, and I'm like, y'all realize you live in one of the coolest towns in all of Hyrule with a cool spa and a bar, and you want to go find a dude and settle down and get married, not in Gerudo Town. What are you? What are you smoking? And and not only that, but they're all just like the. I mean, the Gerudo are ripped as hell. Yeah, like, they are strong women. Yeah, I mean, they are just like they are. Man, would not would not want to meet a Gerudo in a in a dark alley. No, like, they absolutely, will, they not. will take you apart. Um, yeah, I mean, they just like they seem like such huge badasses, and they're all just like, well, I guess I gotta go get, get married. I gotta I gotta go head off to Hateno Village to find a random ass. Hylian man. White dude somewhere. And you're like, like, really? Yeah. Is that really what you need to do? Because I don't think you need to do that. <laughs> there is an interesting thing. So there are pieces of dialogue when you talk to some of the NPCs. Of course, they mention the fact that the Gerudo, as a race of people to whom a male is only born once every hundred years, which is, you know, that's how we get Ganondorf in our lives, right? Um, so, you know, having to go abroad to find 
husbands is like a, a means of procreation for their species, which I guess that makes sense. But sure. It, it's kind of like that Star Trek episode in Voyager where they have uh, when Harry Kim becomes a different species because they did like a retrovirus. And it's it's. Oh my gosh, I'm just now making this connection off the fly and I can't believe I didn't make that connection earlier. But yeah, it's it's very similar to that. You lost me a little bit at Star Trek Voyager and you lost me even more at Harry, Harry Kim. Kim. That's yeah. fair. That's <laughs> fair. But uh it's a weird it's an interesting connection. Um Yeah, I, and and like I have more logistical questions about that, right? Because obviously they can't bring their husbands back to Gerudo Town. So when they have their daughter inevitably, do they just like peace out from their husband, take the kid and go back to Gerudo town. And then like, what happens to the husband and, and the father? Like he's just chilling. These are questions that we do not get answers to. There's just not a lot of logistical sense in how this is all framed. <laughs> Let's just be honest. <laughs> it's uh yeah, it really is something. Um, it does lead to a lot of very interesting NPC dialogue once we get to this section of the map. So uh, great, yes. But, um, I think there's like a Gerudo dating school. There the is, yes, I wandered there into there. Like, it's actually in very... God, this. the more we talk about this, the more I see how problematic some of this is. The Gerudo <laughs> dating school is in the same building where they have cooking classes. Oh, boy. Oh, God. I just. Oh, oh, no. Oh, no. That's that's just bad. Yeah. Look, we stand empowered women at Sacred Realms. We we stand fierce, fiercely independent women who don't need no men. But if you choose to have a man or another woman in your life, we stand that as well. We do. We but, do. But uh, yeah, this is just this. this there are a lot of problematic things in this section, aren't there? Oh my gosh! <laughs> yeah, it's really, it's really there. Um, I don't know, and yeah, you know, I think it's navigated like with a lot of humor at times, which kind of helps cushion the blow. But yeah, I, 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 I just think that uh, again, going back to like the cultural uh realities of japan where a lot of this is happening i mean this is a this is a nation that is not necessarily grappling to my knowledge with lgbtq identity uh the way that um a lot of western nations are it's just there's a traditionalism there that is kind of tough to overcome and um and yeah so this is just an element of that i think it's it's all done rather benignly here but if you're looking for it then you can kind of see like oh yeah that's kind of like or if you're living it right like you like we've said you and i are not living that sense of callousness i guess that this kind of can come across as right like we've never been oppressed in our life and we've never had to stand up for ourselves to get a seat at the table. And we've never had to make a case for why we are important. Whereas some people who may be playing this game and seeing these things, while it may be played off as humorous, they've dealt with that most of their lives. And and that's just, I can see how that would be very disheartening. And, and now that thinking about that actually objectively, it's kind of makes me sad a little bit. And like, I, I kind of wish we had taken an opportunity to really lean into the Gerudo are awesome. And like, you don't need a husband. Like if you want a husband, go get one. If you don't want one, don't go get one. Like, I, I feel like we could have easily leaned into a real cool empowerment movement with this one. And yeah. they didn't. And that's, that's a little sad. I know what you're talking about, Matt. I, uh, I heard on the internet the other day that there is no more oppressed group of people in the world than white Christian men. So, well, that's because you were reading Breitbart for laughs and that is never a good idea. Oh, <laughs> uh, I, 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 you know what? Uh, I know I should stop doing that. I know it's not healthy for me. Just read the onion instead. It's funnier. 
It, it is way funnier and way less sad. <laughs> and because they're actually trying to be funny, not serious. Unlike Breitbart. Uh, oh. oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no, 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 no. So let's talk about the Yiga hideout, because this, in essence, is kind of a level unto itself. Right? Well, well, before we go there, I do just want to, like, like you said, give a shout out to Riju, not only for being an awesome NPC, but also really showcasing um, something that we haven't really seen in other areas, which is a leader undergoing a, pr- a pretty heavy period of self-doubt. She is very young and she's like there are even people in the town who comment like Riju's like a child. Why, why is a child our chief? And like, you know, obviously the Gerudo seem to be a, uh, monarchical hierarchy. So, you know, passed down from her mother to her. You mean a matriarchal hierarchy? Monarchal monarch. So same, but yes, matriarchal. Oh, okay. Matriarchal no, I, I, monarchy. Okay. No, no, no. You're right. Yeah, you're yeah, right. You're yeah. right. You're right. Matriarchal monarchy also works there. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, and on top of that, not only is she very young, she inherited this from her mother who died when she was young, which has its own, you know, trauma and issues. Um, but also the heirloom of her people, the the basically her crown was stolen by her by the sworn enemies of her nation right out from under her. And so she's undergoing all of that. And, you know, as a young person is sitting there thinking like, oh, dang. Am I not ready to be chief? Am I not ready to lead my people? How how am I going to handle this? Um, and I think that that's a that's a neat little conflict that we kind of come into, um, which mirrors kind of in some ways the the path that Zelda was going on. Right? She's she's this princess who's supposed to have this sacred power, who she just can't get it. It's not coming, no matter how hard she tries, no matter what she does. She just doesn't feel like she's good enough. Riju is feeling very much the same way. And whereas Link was there to really just kind of be there for Zelda and try to help her along the way and really just his silent um, companionship, he has a very proactive way of being able to help Riju with reclaiming her, her her heirloom, her crown. And I think that's a fun little parallel that we see. Yeah, no, I agree. So let's talk about the people who stole the Thunderhelm. <laughs> Indeed. That would be the Yiga clan. And we've met, uh, we've met foot, uh, foot, excuse me, blah. We have met foot soldiers of the Yiga clan before now, uh, disguised as travelers. They have attempted to kill us very unsuccessfully. Uh, <laughs> Hilariously unsuccessfully. Yeah, exactly. Uh, they have attempted to kill us before now. Uh, now we kind of come into their hideout, their base of operations. We learn a little bit more about the Yiga clan and what, what they're about, uh, which is, of course, um, they're, they're, they are stands of Ganon, right? Indeed. Yeah. So the Yiga clan stole the Thunderhelm. We have to infiltrate their hideout. How did you feel about the Yiga clan hideout section of this game? So I remembered it being a lot bigger and more involved than it actually was. Um, it was only t- like two rooms. Uh, and I mean, outside of like the entryway. Uh, and it's supposed to be a, a stealth heavy section of the game, which um, I did do it stealthy. Uh, and then I saved my progress, went back to a previous save and did it not stealthy and just killed everybody and had more fun. Uh, it was, it was kind of a fun little combat challenge. If you do it, not stealthy, um, because you can't get hit a single time by the, by the big boys. So that was kind of interesting. Um, but yeah, it was, it was when I did it as a stealth thing, it was a little, it was a lot of fun. Um, because, (laughs) <laughs> when you drop the bananas, the big boys kind of like t- 
tiptoe over there with their hands up like little T-Rexes. Yeah. And they're like, ooh, and then they like get to the banana and they look around like a like a cat who just found a toy. Uh-huh. And they're like, is anybody gonna take this from me? No, no, no. Okay, cool. <laughs> Boom. Got it. Uh so that was that was funny. Um, there's some good, there's some really good loot in the Yiga clan, uh, hideout. There's, there's a lot of, a lot stuff of in really here. good loot. There's like a lot of rupees, a lot of gems, a lot of bananas. Yeah. 40 plus mighty bananas, uh, at least a thousand rupees, I think. And, uh, lots and lots of rare precious gems, rubies, sapphires, topaz. I didn't find any diamonds, but, uh, rubies, sapphires, and, uh, yeah. topaz uh, galore. So, uh, definitely financially beneficial yeah definitely uh so i enjoyed the yiga clan hideout quite a lot i did not get caught on this playthrough and i have before um you know i i would say that uh actually the last time that i did this i actually ran into a streak of bad luck where i i just got i got busted several times um this time i was making uh i was making heavy use of bananas as traps for the yiga clan guards because that's the trick i mean if you need to distract a yiga clan dude in this uh in this hideout all you have to do is either um shoot an arrow at one of the platforms that are holding bananas inexplicably around like the walls of this place yeah it seems like a design flaw yeah, exactly. Like they've just got they've got a ton of pallets mounted to the wall that are just holding bananas. It, it, within so. I within eye eye shot of their guards who are guarding the only entry points. So and you know that your guards are gonna abandon their post to go get the banana. Like you would think you wouldn't tempt them that way. Yeah. I mean it's weird. But uh so I made I made quite a lot of use of all of those bananas and uh and dropped a few bundles of my own at times to distract guards. And doing that uh, really makes it easy to get through here without being discovered. Um, I will say, make sure that you uh, make sure you take the ladder up to the top area of the hideout because, yeah, there's like 30 bundles of Mighty Bananas up there that you can just Yeah, it was awesome. It. Yeah, uh, and those are definitely useful. Um, Mighty Bananas are are definitely great, especially for what we were talking about last week. If you're going to go into the trial of the sword and you want to get that triple attack bonus, when mm-hmm. you go in, need some mighty bananas for that. Yes, you do. Yeah. So I like this area of the game for what it manages to accomplish with stealth mechanics. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that a lot of Zelda games have had stealth mechanics incorporated, right? Like mm-hmm. in Ocarina of Time, we have the whole uh, Hyrule Castle gardens that we have to sneak through. Um, the Gerudo town, the Gerudo prison break. Yeah, Gerudo prison break. That's a big one in Majora's Mask. We've got the uh, Deku Palace that we've got to do something very similar in. The Gerudo prison break. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes, exactly. Weird. Are we seeing a theme here? Uh-huh, mm. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, stealth sections in Zelda games are not new exactly, but I, f- I feel like this one is particularly well done. Um, the tension here is pretty high. I would have been totally fine if there was another large chamber in here. Absolutely. I, I do think it needed another another large chamber. I will say that, you know, once you get past the two stealthy chambers, there's that interesting area where it looks like it's a dead end, but it's got all the treasure chests in it, and it kind of is teasing you to use Magnesis. Yep. And that's when you see the fake wall that leads to the outside area. Uh-huh. Um, I thought that was a pretty cool piece of game design. That's not, it's it's some aggressive signposting, but not blatant, right? It's not just like, 
the the wall is not blatantly magnesis right, right like it's right, not right. showing you where to go it's like hey if you like use magnesis to get some fun treasure chests you will most likely see this fake wall yes so i thought that was neat yeah i agree i agree i think that that was clever um but yeah the point stands i think we could have done with one extra large room of of yiga patrolman in here yeah. Um, so we get, we, so, you know, we get through that last room that you're talking about. We go and we fight Master Koga, the boss fight of this section of the game. Uh, definitely a very unique boss in Breath of the Wild. His, <laughs> his mechanic, I mean, so, okay, so we're going to get to, we're going to get to his characterization in a second, but just Woof. from, just from his, uh, from the, the standpoint of the mechanics that he utilizes, uh, some very interesting stuff here. Um, this was actually even more unique in the original release of Breath of the Wild. It's a little bit less interesting now after uh, having played the Champions Ballad. And when you go back and you play, uh, you you play against the uh, monk Maz Koshia later. Right. Um, that is a much harder version of this fight. Much harder. Yeah. Uh, but I do still think that it is fun because Breath of the Wild is a game where, for the most part, aside from Blight Ganon's, and aside from Nadra, I guess, you're really just fighting the same kinds of enemies over and over and over again who have the same mechanics with varying levels of health, right? Mm-hmm. And so fighting a boss that has got his own combat mechanics does shake things up a little bit, and I feel like it deserves some recognition for that. Yeah, I, I would agree. While while he may be ridiculous, um, he like I said in my plot recap, he's he's got some pretty cool powers, like being able to levitate over this seemingly bottomless pit, uh, eff- seemingly effortlessly, uh, summoning random boulders to throw at you, then summoning spiky metal boulders to throw at you. Like it's he's he's obviously at least a somewhat powerful individual within the canon of sorcerers in the Zelda yeah. universe, right? Yeah. Like he, he's obviously no joke. Um even though he portrays himself as such. Um he's just a fat, fat <clears throat> Yiga person. He really is. It's very weird. Um and like the way he acts, the way he looks does not really to me convey a powerful master assassin like at all yeah but apparently he is so i think there's a little bit of caricature being done here well absolutely yeah Yeah. i mean he's uh master koga is definitely being played for laughs in terms of his physique and mannerisms and i think that that's that's that was an interesting choice. I, <laughs> it was a choice. <laughs> I don't I don't want to say that it's not effective. I don't want to say that I don't like it because I do. I think I, I think it leads to a cool in, uh, interaction in this game. I do wonder what the thought process was that led to him being a little bit more of a comic relief boss than more of like I am the badass ninja master of this clan, you know? Uh, yeah, like with, with what they have been building the Yiga clan up to be, which is the inverse of the Sheikah, right? So both are ninja clans that are supposedly working in the shadows to further the goals of their respective masters. For the Sheikah, it's the royal lineage and the royal line of, of Hyrule and the champions. And for the Yiga, it is the inverse. It is, you know, trying to destroy them, whether that is in service to the Calamity or not. I actually don't really know if they straight up serve Ganon, but they definitely are enemies of the Sheikah and the champions and the the royal line of Hyrule, right? Which is kind of interesting because the the Gerudo were actually 
in Ocarina of Time anyway, right. kind of sworn enemies of the Hyrule royal line as well. So, you know, it seems like the Gerudo over the course of however many uh, centuries or millennia have kind of made an alliance, uh, uneasy or not, I don't really know, but at least an alliance with uh, Hyrule, a royal family and the champions. And now the Yiga clan, maybe they were like an offshoot of Gerudo folks or disenfranchised Chica who just decided they wanted to kill stuff instead. And and instead of instead of portraying the master of the Yiga clan as a very powerful ninja assassin sorcerer, it's this goofy dude who jumps around like <laughs> like um like pennywise when oh, he's going in yeah, like it when, yeah. like when he's like pennywise when he's having a fit and uh like that that's just i don't know I, i'm not sure what i'm not sure what tone they were trying to convey like are they is nintendo trying to say that like the yiga clan are doomed to fail because they're a joke or is or are we supposed to think that like the Yiga clan are not actually that big of a threat because in some of the other scenes we see specifically like in the champions ballad and in some of the memories with Arbosa, they seem like a pretty credible threat to Zelda's life in the age before the calamity. Like they, right. they seem pretty dangerous and now they just don't, now they don't feel dangerous anymore. Like even before fighting master Koga, like encountering them randomly and they would attack, they weren't, necessarily dangerous to us but they felt like they could be dangerous and, yeah. and now i just don't feel that way anymore i do want to say that i i appreciate the symbolism that the Yiga clan uses which is just the inverted sheikah symbol right yeah yeah i was going to talk about that too i think it's i think it's very good that, that immediately continues. that immediately sets a tone of like oh these are the satanists of like <laughs> it's know? the upside down cross all right, over again exa- man exactly i think that that's very interesting um so yeah i, I think the Yiga clan has a a fair amount of personality they're they're played a little bit for laughs um but i I think they are fun to fight against and of course we'll be fighting against them a lot more going forward because as soon as you defeat master koga then big big boy yiga dudes start i'm very excited i like fighting the big boy yiga dudes their wind cleavers are really fun um i like getting the wind cleavers and using them against other people i i really like that weapon yeah it's it's great it is a two-handed weapon which i don't use a ton of in this game but it's it's a giant ass samurai sword, and it also it creates uh it creates wind funnels the same way that Korok leaves do, kind of right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But they actually like do damage instead yeah. of just like pushing yeah. people around. Yeah, I, I really like the wind cleaver. The design of the wind cleaver is really cool. It's got that cool pattern that's kind of like luminescent that goes along the edge of the blade. Yep, I really like that. Yeah. All right. Do you have anything else that you want to say about this section of the game generally before we move on to part three? Because we are, geez, how, I mean, we were an hour and 15, an hour and five minutes into this show. Yeah, I think, I think I've said most of what I want to say. There's some stuff I kind of want to get into in Bloopy Trails, but for the, for the main chunk of game, I think we've covered most of it. Um, Still just really confused on what exactly we're going for with the Yiga. I, I don't, I don't know that. I don't know that Nintendo landed the Yiga clan for me. And I think they had a really good opportunity to do so. And they kind of played it against itself. Yeah. In, in this uh, act of the game. I, I also agree that the Yiga clan in general could have been much more threatening than they were actually portrayed as. Yeah. So, yeah. I think I'll leave my thoughts at that. Okay. Sounds good. Let's get into part three, which is shrine diving, where we analyze 
a shrine that we thought was of particular excellence this week. Or in my case, a slew of shrines that I think are excellent. Wow. Well, I'm going to go first because I only have one and I don't want to get in the way of of the slew. (laughs) Um, I know Matt didn't hit this one. So mine actually, I, so one thing that I was very excited about doing when I got into the Garuda region was going to be shrines that had electricity as their main component. And I played several shrines that, that did have that as their main component and they were very, very fun. But my favorite shrine this week actually didn't involve electricity at all. It involved a, uh, a rune that we've had since the beginning of the game, which is the bomb. My shrine this week is the show Dantu shrine, which can be found in the, uh, it's, it's at the North end of the Gerudo desert. It's kind of like, um, Jeez, it's actually like sort of right where the Gerudo Desert becomes the Gerudo Foothills and then the Gerudo Highlands. Um, so it's it's up along the northern inside mountain range. But so the uh, the name of this shrine is Two Bombs. And basically what you have to do in this shrine is you have to use both your round and your square bombs to activate switches at certain times um, to progress through it. And I have mentioned this several times before. I love when this game gives me a reason to use both bombs because I've got both of them and I only am ever using the round one. But I think that the fact that the square one stays stationary on a platform can occasionally be used for very interesting puzzle solving. And, you know, this shrine, I don't think it it necessarily matters too much whether one is round or one is square i think they can work equally well but just having to use both bombs in concert and like being able to switch between them on the fly in your rune menu and then detonate them at certain specific times i think is is just a lot of fun so the way that this one works is that you have to you have to launch bombs across a chasm like there's a little a little ramp um that kind of like shoots whatever is in it on a timed schedule and you've got to put a round bomb and a square bomb and you've got to detonate them at certain specific times so that you can ascend and reach the monk at the very end and it's just it's fun it's very clever it takes some thinking about it's a puzzle that we've had for the entirety of the game and i still had to sit and think about it for a minute like oh how how is the best way for me to do this and i really like that i like being um intellectually challenged by a shrine. I, I always appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. When Whenever we get to shrines that you and I have played or have beaten at least four or five times, uh, and we still have to sit there and think about it for more than a couple of seconds is, is, a, is a fun little challenge. Yeah. Alright, so you said you had a slew. That was your word, not mine. <laughs> Lay it on us, Matt. What's part three looking like for you? So, I just want to call out that I think the Gerudo section of the game, both in the highlands and in the desert, have some of the best shrines in the entire game. The ones that utilize electricity, and I said this last week at the end, that I was really looking forward to these shrines for this reason, is that um, Breath of the Wild has done some really amazing things with... uh, 
the environment, but more so than any, I think, electricity was done very, very, very well. Uh, moving it through different mediums, whether that's uh, metal or water or, um, you know, whatever else, I think really those are the two that you move it through other than yourself when you get hurt. Um, the way that they do that is very clever. And there are three or four shrines that I went through that were different variations on moving around either metal blocks or self-contained electricity orbs or um, uh, metal balls on chains to, to maneuver them in certain ways to activate electric panels and electric lines to activate gears or switches or levers. Like, they're all just very, very good. They're very well done. Um, my personal favorite, though, was the uh, Hawakoth Shrine, which is over at the very southwestern edge of the map by the Great Fairy Fountain. And it takes kind of... All portions of all of the other electric based shrines and kind of mashes them into one and you can use uh self the self-contained electricity balls to activate certain switches that will uh activate moving floor panels and there there's a portion of this one where you can they're like the mini guardians and they're on these moving floor panels and if you activate the switch it will shoot them off and destroy them because they'll fall into water. So that was really fun. Also, by doing that, you can catapult yourself to get three a uh, 300 rupee chest and another 100 rupee chest. Nice. So that one's fun. There's also a section where you have to do some uh, maneuvering of uh, rotating uh, sliding blocks, um, and you have to position them correctly so that the they line up to throw three switches along a way to open up... Uh, uh, to activate an electricity panel. And then there's a, there, the last section of that is you have to open up a electricity panel to get a missing gear out of a secluded room and then place that gear where it needs to go and then reactivate the electricity. And like all of that just works really, really well together to be a really fun puzzle solving shrine. Um, probably the most, most intense puzzle solve uh, that I have really seen in Breath of the Wild so far. I really, really like that shrine. Yeah, I'll, I'll probably pick an electric shrine next week to talk about um, in more depth. Uh, I will say that as soon as you get into this section of the map, the amount of puzzle solving that is required to uh, conquer a shrine is a lot more than we have seen recently. Yep. It was it was honestly a breath of fresh air because after the last few weeks, it really felt like we were just kind of, we were in a phase where we were just going to do major tests of strength yeah. until the end of the game. Right. And I like those. They're fun, but I want more puzzles. I, I want something that I actually have to think about. And a lot of these electric shrines where you have to solve puzzles using electricity and you have to conduct different currents correctly you have to line up different nodes with other nodes it's it's a lot of fun and i think a lot of these are really well thought out so i'll talk about this more next week but i i do agree with you matt i i think that that is um that that's the recipe for a really entertaining shrine right yeah absolutely yeah all right let's get into part four which is bloopy trails where we talk about interesting things that diverted our attention this week Again, Matt, uh, you said that you had uh, a few things that you wanted to talk about, so I'm going to pass it off to you. Yeah, so the first thing that I really did, and I spent a bit of time doing this, was I did a couple cast quests um, to 
to get some more shrines, specifically the Blood Moon one, which uh, I know we actually talked about last week. Um, I mentioned it briefly earlier, so I won't rehash that. Uh, but also, I, I furthered the Terrytown quest. Um, I <laughs> embarrassingly uh, went and spent about 20 minutes looking for the Rito um, <laughs> arrow maker and couldn't find him and realized that I probably just needed to get a move on so that we could record tonight. <laughs> and so I need to go finish that one up, but I got Ronson over there. I, uh, gave the dude his 40 bundles of wood, or I think it was 30 this time, 30 bundles of wood. So I progressed that a little bit. Uh, but one of the interesting ones that I really liked was, um, in the quest to get the sand boots. Um, when you get the snow boots from, our rando, I think it's a dude. I don't actually know. It's a little unclear if the guy or girl who's running around outside of Gerudo Town, I think it's a guy. The sand boots person. Yes, the sand boots person. Uh, he sends you, he, she. I'm going to go with he because he's outside Gerudo Town and he's very interested in you when you're wearing the Desert Vi costume. So I'm going to go with he. Fair. So he uh, sends you off to find the fabled eighth. Uh, heroine uh and that was really fun and i i always i could never exactly remember on the map where it is i remember mm. it's in a crevice and I, I always spent a little bit of time wandering around Up in the highlands yep wandering around the highlands which was really fun i actually had a really cool close encounter with farosh while i was doing that there's actually a point that's right next to the lionel where there's actually like a carved out looks like a trough in the mountainside and farosh like flies right through it so that was really cool um, found the eighth, uh, heroine, which was, which those statues themselves, there are seven others, um, which I did that one as well, where you have to put the orbs into mm. the seven pedestals. Yeah. Um, that's another blue trail that I did, which was fun. Um, yeah, I thought that was really cool and just a little tiny piece of cool world building that you know, they did. I remember when Breath of the Wild was first coming out and a map of the entire, uh, area was published online. I looked at that seven heroine statue section of the Gerudo Desert, and I thought for sure that that was going to be like... The Seven Sages. No, no, no. I thought that that was going to be the ruined remains of the Arbiter's Grounds. Ah, also a good also a good call. Yeah, and you can actually find an area of the map in the desert that is labeled as the Arbiter's Grounds. Yes, I'm and, actually looking for it right now. And it is literally just a stone pillar in the middle of the desert, and you find a Molduga there. So yes. I guess that is all that remains of the giant Colosseum-looking Arbiter's Grounds of Twilight Princess, but... Yes. Anyway, they they are there. (laughs) So, yeah. Um, So for me, the biggest bloopy trail was that I also was trying to clear out as many of the cast quests as I could. I was down to my last one, and it uh, coincidentally was the one that takes place in the shadow of the Gerudo Tower. Um, And I no pun intended because. Uh, lining up the shadow of the tower is, <laughs> is the what quest. Is, what is required? So uh, this was a really fun one where uh, you paraglide down to the Sheikah pedestal uh, while the shadow of the tower is overlapping it, and then if you do that, you can aim an arrow up into the sky and let it go, and that will summon the shrine. I thought that was a really cool callback to the way that you get the fire arrows mm-hmm. in Ocarina of Time. You know. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's a little less impressive because 
your arrows for the most part in Breath of the Wild, uh, they have a distinct curve to them. <laughs> yeah, they they fire. they routinely fall to the earth. Yeah, it's a little it's a little less impressive than the crazy uh, sniper arrows of Ocarina of Time. Uh, but, but more realistic, that's yes, for sure. But it is a similar mechanic, and yeah, so I, I did that. I now have got all of the cast shrines finished, and not next week, but the week after, I'm going to uh, make a visit to Cass and Rito Village, and I'm going to get the awesome cutscene that you get from having completed all those. I do love that awesome cutscene. Yeah, it's, it's great. It's great. Uh, let's go ahead and get into part five, which is Z-targeting, where we talked about fascinating characters or enemies that we happen to cross. I actually had like several this week. There, there are some good ones. There are some really good ones in here. The ones that I am going to go with are maybe not the ones that people will be expecting to hear about. Uh, the first one is going to be an NPC by the name of Lucan, who is a uh, Gerudo Vi who you meet outside of the walls of Gerudo town. And uh, I went and talked to her and she basically is a spec ops Gerudo warrior who is going to go and pose as a traveler to try and infiltrate the Ika clan. The thing is she tells you that she is undercover immediately (laughs) upon talking to her. Without any, like, she's... So with, who are you again? Yeah, with, none with, of that. Without yeah. any string of dialogue that's just like, oh, you seem trustworthy. Like, nothing even to that extent. It's just like, oh, hi there, random traveler. I'm going deep undercover to try and infiltrate this clan of assassins who, by the way, are known to pose as travelers walking around... <laughs> <laughs> I rule. Uh, this is a definite flaw in the plan here. Right, exactly. Um, I have questions. <laughs> yeah. So this seemed not too super smart to me uh, because Link, while while we know Link as being a, a an upstanding citizen, uh, also could very easily have been a Giga assassin in disguise. Wow, that's hilarious. <laughs> Yeah, so, yeah. She, she needs to work on her undercover backstory. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> Lucan. <laughs> Man. Lucan, maybe you uh, maybe you should audit a few extra classes in Gerudo Stealth School. Like, yeah, you're you're right now attending the Harry Kim School of Bad Choices. So yeah, maybe don't do that. Don't do that. The other, the other choice. <laughs> this is not my primary choice for the week because I. Lucan takes that one for sure. Yeah, Lucan gets that one. I don't think I've actually. So we've got a rule where uh, main characters, you can only choose them once. And I don't think I've chosen Link yet. And I don't want to. I don't think either of us have chosen Link yet. Yeah, I don't want to blow it on this one. But like <laughs> Link's dialogue options when you go and talk to the Sand Seal Wranglers <laughs> is hilarious. He has some great puns. Yes. Yeah, so <laughs> how do we seal the deal? Yeah. So so yeah, you go you go in Gerudo Town <laughs> and you talk to the people who own the Sand Seals, and they're at, they're saying like, oh, it's only twenty rupees to rent one, and if you need a shield, we can uh, hook you up with one of those for only fifty rupees. What do you say? And the four dialogue options are Sand Seal, Sealiously, let's <laughs> seal the deal. How do I set seal? Seal you later. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> Seriously? I, I chose I chose seal the deal. I I, I did. I, oh, I went for it. Oh, gosh. oh gosh. This is awesome. Oh, oh my gosh. gosh. <laughs> <laughs> oh Link. A, Link of Breath of the Wild is just the dad a goober. He is the dad jokiest Link of all time. And I I identify <laughs> with him very much. Yeah, for ma- that maybe. Maybe that's why he doesn't talk so much in the uh, age before the calamity. Zelda didn't appreciate his dad jokes all that much. <laughs> Seriously, some 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 dialogue writer for Breath of the Wild just had the best time doing all he of this. Absolutely did. Uh, they. Yeah, they. What did I say? He. Oh, they. Yeah. Because they only were. men can be dialogue writers. We just spent like the first more than half of this episode talking about how we stand empowered women. So don't give me that. Matt, who is your Z targeting pick for this one? Oh, God. Um, I'm going to, uh, I'm just going to go with the kind of cop out answer here of Riju. And I just really admire her as a character. And I think we've, we've said most of what can be said about, uh, her being just one of the standout NPCs of the game. Um, I think she's got a lot of herbosa in her. Um, even at a young age, she's very, um, she's very imposing in some ways. Like she's very obviously the chief. She's very obviously in charge. Um, she also has this massive bodyguard, uh, who is very terrifying, who I would not want to fight even as link. Um, yeah, I'm a big fan of Riju and just her intuition, even in the very first, her first cutscene is, uh, she says, well, all right, it looks like this is going to be interesting, uh, since this, this is going to be like a clever, I don't remember exactly what it is, but you know, immediately she intuits that there is something interesting and unique about Link and then, um, putting together more so than, um, the Rito elder and more so than the Goron chief, uh, not as much as obviously King Dorfan, but King Dorfan obviously knew Link from his previous life. So that doesn't exactly count. Um, but she just Im- Im- almost immediately recognizes that who Link is. And I think that speaks very well of her as a intuitive leader who um, really has good instincts. And I think she has the makings of a very strong uh, chief. Yeah, this was this was always going to be a tough Z targeting because you could have gone with Riju, you could have gone with Master Koga, you could have gone with the cross dressing Gerudo. Uh, actually, I don't I don't think they're Gerudo. I think he's Hylian. Yeah, uh, you could have gone with the person who gives you the. Uh, actually, we know he's Hylian because he's not the only Gerudo male born in a hundred years. So right. He's yeah, definitely sure. Hylian. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you've got the 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 person who gives you the desert Vi armor. I, there's a lot of really interesting characters in this section. So this one was always going to be very stiff competition. For sure. Um, but I think we we made some good picks. I appreciate your dark horse pick of Lutan. Lucan. Lucan. Yeah. Uh, very, very good. Lucan, the world's worst spec ops agent. <laughs> Absolutely terrible. <laughs> All right. Well, with that being said, let's get into part six, which is our final thoughts, where we let Matt wrap up this section of the game as succinctly as he can think to do and this is always off the cuff never written this down a single time never not in uh a year and a half of making Um, this podcast no a year and two months but yes it feels like a year and a half it does doesn't it it's been a very long stretch of time not because of this podcast just life yeah all right uh one second let me gather some thoughts and also take a drink of my drink do it
Um, so this section of the game starts off our exploration of one of the largest sections of the map of Hyrule. It is a vast and dangerous section of the map. There's really not a lot to redeem it from a beauty standpoint, unless you just really like deserts and snowy mountains, which I kind of like snowy mountains, but, um, it kicks off a huge exploration heavy section of this game for us. Um, on top of that, we really get to interact with a unique and strong culture within the land of Hyrule and that of the Gerudo. Um, we see, uh, their clan chief Riju, who uh, has the makings of a really excellent clan chief, but is definitely struggling with uh, some issues from not only her age, but the the difficulties that she's had within her rule. And we continue our quest for uh, taming the divine beasts with a little sidetrack to take out another one of our prevalent enemies, the Yiga clan, um, while we fight with the comical master Koga. Um, it does not remove the Yiga clan. We actually end up fighting more of them, uh, but it's an important step in uh, taking them out of the game for the rebuilding of Hyrule, which would inevitably come after the fall of Calamity. Mm. I think that this section of the game has a lot going for it from a uh, exploration and a really excellence and shrine development uh, standpoint. Uh, I think as we discussed at the beginning of the podcast, it kind of struggles a little bit with some uh, lack of cultural context. Maybe um, there's definitely some missteps in characterization and some missed opportunities and really leaning into what makes the Gerudo so strong and special and unique apart from what we see in many other uh, fantasy worlds um, where we could have leaned into the, the strength of a warrior, a female warrior race. We kind of get a little bit of a meme and uh, that's a little bit disappointing. Overall, I would say that we, we really had a strong section of the game, though, with excellence and shrine, uh, shrine design, um, some furthering of some major story beats, and just overall really great, great exploration. Well done. I do want to say one of the points that you brought up was the um, the fact that you thought a lot of the terrain was uninspired in this section of the game. Obviously, Not necessarily uninspired. It's just you can't... Like, desert and wasteland is... That is desert and wasteland. No, 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 no. I, I agree with you, with the in, with the exception of the canyon that takes you to the Yiga hideout. I actually found the chiseled red rock of this canyon to be very beautiful, especially with the whole the the ornamentation strung up. Yeah, it's very it. Zion National Park. Uh, it is. The other thing it reminded me of was of Petra in Jordan. Um, Ooh, that's a good one. Yeah. Which, uh, if if y'all don't know uh, what that is, it is most famous for its appearance in <laughs> and, Indiana Jones and the Last, Last Crusade. Crusade. Yeah, yeah. Go watch Last Crusade. You'll see Petra. <laughs> yeah, it is a uh, it is a crazy architectural wonder in the canyons of Jordan, mm-hmm. and uh, its most famous structure is the Treasury. I think is what it's called, and that was the uh, the double of the temple at the end of Last Crusade, where they go and find the Holy Grail. But all of that is like it's it's a. Uh, <coughs> It's a canyon system that is chiseled into the like red rock of Jordan. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And the approach to the Yiga hideout looks very similar to yeah. that. So good call out. Good call yeah. out. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, that is going to do it for the Sacred Realms Rundown this week. We will, of course, be back next week with another installment of the Sacred Realms Rundown to talk about Breath of the Wild Chapter 12, where we conclude our dealings in the Gerudo Desert and really get into the endgame of Breath of the Wild which is insane. 
Yeah, we're we're coming kind of quickly to the end. I know we've got a couple episodes that we're going to be tying up loose ends. Um, we're also going to be doing the Champions Ballad uh, DLC for an episode. Um, but yeah, we are getting close. We've gotten, or at least I've gotten, ninety out of one hundred and twenty shrines. So yep. we're in the last. We're in the last third of the shrines. Mm-hmm. We are. Uh, in our last divine beast, like, yeah, we're, we're getting close. So, uh, I hope you guys have been keeping up and, um, are not trying to cram it all in as if you're studying for a college final the night before. Um, hopefully you guys have been keeping up with us along the way, maybe playing your own way. Um, be sure to, if you are playing your own way, share those stories with us on our Patreon. Uh, we do like to hear how you guys play, uh, Breath of the Wild and any fun stories you have there for us. And of course, some of you were kind enough to do that this week. I'm going to go ahead and feature a story from Haru the Mighty, one of our loyal patrons. Um, every now and again, we open up the Patreon to, uh, have, uh, all of y'all submit stories of the way that you played Breath of the Wild. And several people wrote in this week. Uh, I've got a, another good one that we'll get to next week. But Haru the Mighty was kind enough to send us this gameplay story where they said, The first time I encountered the desert, I was atop the high peaks overlooking the desert valley. What shocked me the most was the horrifying dust cloud and the terror-inducing cries and distant thunderous stomps of the great divine beast, Vonaboris. I was so scared I didn't go back until way later thinking it would hunt me through the desert. The sheer might of this experience left a strong visual imprint of fear and wonder. I absolutely loved how I had to sneak into Gerudo and loved navigating through this mysterious map destroying area. I loved the character's quirky natures and most of all the challenging uh, the, sorry, the challenge of Thunderblight Ganon, which we will of course talk about next week. Truly an excellent area of Breath of the Wilds world also Huru the mighty says i did the entire yiga hideout before i triggered the story and had to do it again later so essentially i did the yiga hideout three times total third for the dlc uh which actually makes me wonder is it empty if you get there before talking to Riju? i, w- I could have sworn it was but uh, the only time i've ever gone in there before talking to Riju was when i jumped into the pit uh, the first time I found it and kind of wandered around for a while, just very curious at what I had found. And that was empty. But I don't know if the actual hideout itself is empty. Definitely something to research. But thank you, Haru the Mighty, for sending us your gameplay story. Of course, if you are uh, a patron of any level on our Patreon, you are free to send us your gameplay stories for any game that we are currently playing. And we are happy to feature them. Whew, Matt. Lyndon. You ready to get out of here? I am. It's almost midnight. <laughs> this was a late one. Yeah, I mean, we, we were a little bit uh, off our off our scheduling game here, mostly because we didn't have a guest, so we didn't have anything keeping us to a tight timeline. <laughs> well, and you're you're also you're you're heading out on a business trip tomorrow and you had to get some time in with your significant other before that happened. And that so, is true, it's an important part of uh, adult life, yes. Yes. So anywho, that all that being said, we're burning the midnight oil over here tonight. But it was a good one. It was a good one. And I'm really excited to get back and to tie up the rest of this section of the map next week because i think there's a lot more to cover absolutely there yep. we got a lot to go a whole divine beast a lot of shrines uh, a lot of exploration some molduga fights Ooh, Ooh, those will be fun the molduga i do love a good molduga fight yep yep it's gonna be a great time 
Well, until then, if you enjoyed today's show and you would like a little extra Sacred Realms in your life, you can head over to patreon.com slash sacredrealmspod and become a patron. If you've got no rupees, it is not a problem. Five-star Apple podcast reviews are a great free way to support us. More reviews means that more people see our show. That makes us very happy, Hylians. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Sacred Realms Pod for updates on the podcast and for behind-the-scenes action. Sacred Realms will be back next Wednesday with our thoughts on Breath of the Wild Chapter 12 covering the back half of the Gerudo Desert. Breath of the Wild is, of course, playable on the Wii U or the Nintendo Switch. In the meantime, may your hearts be full. May your arrows never miss. We will catch you all next time. Sacred Realms is an independent podcast production, which is produced, edited, and mixed by me, Lyndon Willoughby. Our music comes from Zelda and Chill by Mikkel and is graciously provided to us by Mikkel and Game Chops Records. Zelda and Chill is available to stream on Spotify or to purchase directly from GameChops.com. Finally, our thanks go to Nintendo for creating such exceptional and innovative experiences. Bye!